America's got money problems, inflation, out-of-control debt and spending, and it's only getting worse. But there's hope. Solving America's money problems, one hour at a time. It's time for Good Money with Tho Bishop. Good morning. This is Good Money. I am your host, Tho Bishop. This is a product of the Mises Institute, M-I-S-E-S dot org is where you could find more content like we will provide on the show today. Last night was primary debate night in the GOP, a uh, kind of a poured first outing for the, the political circus ahead for the 2024 campaigns. Eight campaigns enter. Many will probably not make it to the next debate. Several I think looked on stage to make it very clear that they probably should not be there. I'm sure they're very fine people, but um, you know this is a it is a blood sport. This politics and there was uh, there's some fireworks, there was uh, some shouting, and there was some lip service paid to economic issues. In fact, I was surprised to see that of all of the individuals there. Um, one who came closest to identifying a real truth was Nikki Haley, former ambassador to the UN and governor of South Carolina, where she pointed out very early in the debate that if we are going to talk about the trillions in debt, if we're going to talk about the growing deficit, if we're talking about this runaway fiscal irresponsibility that we can't simply blame the Democrats, Team Blue. We can't simply blame the liberals, you know, the left, that the Republicans have played a major role in getting us to the point we're in as Nikki Haley, who I've got very strong disagreements on on a variety of other issues, many of which came to light last night. As she acknowledged that it was the Trump administration, it was 45, that was spending recklessly with a Republican-controlled House, with a Republican-controlled Senate in those first two years before COVID and the emergency measures required, you know, in a time of crisis. Um, It's worth noting that one of the great follies policy-wise that helped spark the inflation problem that we have that that has helped normalize all of this it goes back to the Powell pivot at the end of the during a, a 2018 where following you know very good policies in terms of deregulation from the administration uh following the ex- expectation for tax cuts that did come and and i, I think where it was on, on the whole, a very, uh, very positive thing for the economy. In spite of what were green shoots, kind of the, for the first time since the Great Recession, you saw worker paychecks going up, outpacing inflation. You saw real gains in the real economy. You saw startups, you saw small businesses an era of certainty that they did not have under the Obama years, that there was real economic growth going on in this country. And the response to that was for the Fed to 
signal that they were going to start raising rates back in 2018. Of course, then Trump took to Twitter, as it was called at the time, and saying, oh, we can't do this. We need, we need uh, zero interest rates. Europe's negative interest rates. We should be able to do it like that. I think a big part of it comes from a debate moment that Trump had in 2016, where he had an incredible moment of clarity identifying the big fat bubble that uh, at the time Chairman Yellen, not Treasury Secretary Yellen, um, and Bernanke had created. Um, even earlier in the campaign, he went on CNBC talking about the role that low interest rates play, that it's great for him because he's a real estate guy, but for average families that have saved, that done the right thing, that they're the ones getting screwed. Um, and he was right about that. And of course, the thing is that when a bubble pops, you do not want to be the person in charge when it pops. You, you, want, you want to be the person in the aftermath. And so he saw the very real reality that a bubble could pop should there be a normalization of rates. So Powell pivoted. He gave in to the political pressure. Uh, we ended up having behind-the-scenes issues with the banking system. There was madness during, with, dealing with the re, repo, kind of interbank uh, loans leading into COVID. And of course, COVID re-releases the, the spigots from the fiscal side, from the monetary side, giving us the inflationary environment that we are still enjoying. No, it's okay. It's only 3% inflation right now. So, you know, to, you know very serious economists like Paul Krugman tell you that's, that's, that's quite all right. In fact, we should perhaps even strive for a 3% inflation rate in the future. Neither here nor there. But so this, this politicalized dynamic of the economy, this politicalization of economics... This is not a left versus right issue. This is a politics versus the market issue. And what we have right now is a culture of economic denialism. It is a skepticism of what markets can do, a desire to replace that with political will to solve things via politicians rather than entrepreneurship. And of course, we also have the very real reality of a captured economic system, big tech, big pharma, these large firms that benefit from state privilege, that need state privilege to get the size and success that they have. These are the tentacles of the state, these various forms of intervention from the administrative regulatory state, from the monetary side of things, rewards large firms at the expense of small ones. Um, you know, from this increasingly hostile legal environment. Um, where various decisions made in terms of hiring, firing, things like that, end up being cartelled by bureaucracy. And there's very real consequence to this. It doesn't simply make us poorer. It makes us inefficient. It makes our services that we provide worse off. It makes security issues more difficult. Because the more and more the state has influence on these things, the more and more these things are decided by politics and not markets, all the problems that exist ultimately with, to its purest form, socialism, play itself out in terms of all these little aspects of our lives that become very big ones. It makes it difficult to allocate resources properly. It makes it difficult to allow for capital upkeep, capital improvement. You know, if you're having to debate the resources given to a specific program out of political judgment, right? different committees going to the legislature or whoever the authority is at the time and saying, oh, well, we need this. 
Well, typically the ones that succeed in getting the funding are the ones that are failing, right? So you've got a very bad incentive structure there. Failure is rewarded. Um, it creates the need to create crises to keep justifying these things. We've seen this play out with, particularly with the, the FBI's budget all sorts of times. We see it play out with the SEC's budget. You know, we, we've missed out on Bernie Madoff in spite of the fact that all these whistleblowers came forward. And the way to solve this is to give us a bigger budget. The areas that are less noisy, uh, oh, well, you know, they're, they're doing fine. What we have now are various aspects of society that are aging. Uh, you the, our power grids are becoming dangerous, uh, outdated. Uh, our roads, many parts of the country, um, having major issues. And of course, not helping any of this is one issue that was definitely one of the, the highlights of tonight's of last night's debate, which was the, the foreign policy conversation, the money shipped over to uh, various foreign adventures or humanitarian efforts. Uh, $14 trillion was uh, a figure thrown out there by uh, Colonel Conor McGregor, or D Douglas McGregor, um, during an interview with Tucker Carlson on X this week. These big figures, these big, uh, these big numbers, it's easy for our eyes to glaze over, unable to really comprehend the extent of their costs. But they have a real impact. We have a, a militarization of our economy, of our resources. So we're going to talk more about some of the real-life consequences of this politicalization of our economy with our guest today, which is Connor O'Keefe of the Mises Institute. I think it's going to be a very fun conversation. So stay tuned on the other side of the break. You're listening to Good Money with Tho Bishop here on Money Talk 1010. Welcome back to Good Money. I am your host, Tho Bishop. This is a product of the Mises Institute, and we've got a special deal for Money Talk 1010 listeners. If you enjoy content like you get on this network, then I think that you will enjoy our Mises Institute magazine, which is called The Austrian. It's a beautiful physical magazine, feels good in your hands, good, good, hefty paper. Uh, something that it looks good on the coffee table, um, full of great economic commentary. Uh, this current issue uh, has an article by Guido Holzman, who is a renowned German economist teaching in Angers, France. Who's got a uh, an article? The new socialism is a public-private partnership, uh, looking at the reality of some of the modern economic uh, capture that we talked about in the first segment, and also a, a great article from uh, Thorsten Paulette, another great European economist. What the central bank cartel has planned for you, and if you want to find out the answer to that question, then you can get your copy of the Austrian magazine free. Delivered directly to your doorstep every other month. Just go to Mises.org slash magazine. That's M-I-S-E-S dot -E org slash magazine. One subscriber to the Austrian magazine is our guest today, Connor O'Keefe. Connor is a video producer and a, a prolific author on the Mises Wire. It has had a number of great articles of late. Connor, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no, glad to have you. And um, 
One article I want to start off with today is an article that got the attention of Glenn Beck last week. And I, I thought it was did a great job of capturing some of the, the real-life consequences that kind of play on in the background in this politicalization of the economy, the politicalization of resources, the way, um, again, certain things that we expect to function properly in a normal society just aren't doing right right now. And, of course, that brings us to the horrific, horrific tragedy of uh, Maui and the devastating fires there. Um, and you had an, an article highlighting the extent to which just heinous government failure um, played a role in creating a situation where, again, just the, the reports from on the ground, um, you know, have, have made a, you know, what, what was always going to be a tragic situation. I mean, you know, dealing with a wildfire is, is you know, very difficult work, um, but just has really amplified the human toll. Um, can, can, so can you share with our audience a bit um, you know, some of the content of your article? Yeah, so this is an issue that's been pretty important to me for the last few years. It kind of goes back to college. Um, the college I went to, we spent the last year and a half um, working on a research project, and I was a geology major, so I focused um, kind of more on the climate science side of things. And um, 50 years before uh, I was there doing this project, um, in that same town in Ohio where I went to college, there was a really deadly flood. And um, I think something like 30 people died, which was a lot for a small town. And so I, uh, the project I chose was sort of examining um, that flooding event and trying to see um, how the probability and danger of something like that happening again has changed in the 50 years since that occurred. And um, what I found is that um, there was a statistically significant but very slight increase in the probability of a flooding event like that occurring. Um, but I also looked at um, the land use in the floodplain. Um, I don't remember exactly what tipped me off to this, but um, when I examined that, I, I used satellite um, imagery and then old aerial photography to compare what the land in the floodplain was being used for. And what I found was that back in the 50s and 60s, when this, uh, in 69, when this flood occurred, uh, the floodplain was full of neighborhoods, of houses, mainly, you know, poorer, smaller houses. Um, and then today, or, you know, this was back in 2019, um, that same floodplain was instead full of farms and warehouses and um, things of that nature. And so what I determined was that even though there was a slight po uh, probability increase in a flood like that occurring, the community was much less vulnerable to a flood to that same flood because you know while it's bad for farms and warehouses to flood it's nothing compared when, when we're talking about the human cost to neighborhoods full of houses and so what i really learned doing that project was that what land in high-risk areas is being used for is probably the most important factor for determining how deadly a uh, disaster is and so when you know news of this fire broke um I was already, you know, kind of sensitive to to this to this insight I had gained, and um, so I wanted to look into uh, kind of how the land was being used, if there was anything kind of uh, fishy going on there. And so I started um, looking. Uh, the, the reports were 
um, it's still being investigated. We don't have very specific answers, but pretty quickly it was becoming clear that um, th- there happened to be some faults in the power grid um, right before fire was first spotted. And then as I looked into it, um, the, the reports were coming out. Uh, uh, fire was first spotted in this area, kind of um, up- uphill from the city where there's a lot of electrical infrastructure. There's a substation, there's a lot of power lines. It's kind of where um, the the large you know metal industrial power lines are transitioning into the small local power lines. And, and uh, the reports were that this is where fire started. So I started looking um, at this area and sure enough, it was uh, it was grassland and specifically it was grassland with a very uh, highly flammable species of gla- of grass that um, was, was apparently an invasive species. And so, you know, th- this was uh, it was kind of um, bringing me back to this project I had done where it's like, OK, we have some uh, land use here that seems to have, you know, well, first of all, making the uh, the situation a lot more risky, but it's possible um, that it was kind of behind the fire. And so I, I started kind of digging and start, found um, that, uh, that, that there was um, just institutional failure after institutional failure uh, that was, I, I think, really responsible for this. Um, turning from you know just some uh, sparks igniting grass into the the tragedy uh, that that it turned out to become. Now, absolutely, and there's 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 an element to this where you know there there's always a you know there, there's there's a demand for order in society, right? Particularly when we're dealing with you know advanced areas. I mean you know Maui. A, a prime uh, vacation destination. Uh, you know, we're, we're not talking about a you know an undeveloped third world country. We're, we're talking about, I mean, we're talking about America here, and the failures across the board, both in terms of the the issues with the electrical grid, um, you know, the the lack of you know, preventative measures to begin with, um, the breakdown of again the the, the, the not utilizing sirens. Um, I was reading an article yesterday about the extent to which the roadways leaving uh, the area had been blocked off. Um, that those that survived were basically those that broke through the barricades there, and. You know, if if without the heavy hand of the state promoting a false sense of security, a false dynamic that don't worry, someone's in charge here. You know, it, the, the the hindrance that is created from maintaining order in its own right. You know, the the you know, we can think about the difference between private security. Um, which is becoming increasingly popular in America because of the breakdown of our traditional policing system. But you see this in third world countries, right, where you have very nice areas that have private security forces versus the police services that, you know, are, are either uh, in the best case scenario, understaffed, ill-prepared, or in the worst situation are actively captured by various criminal elements here. Um, you know, this dynamic of a, a, a 
us having assurances that the state is going to, at the very least, you know, for all the money that we might complain about in taxes, for all the things that we might complain about in terms of the cost of having a state, that there's a level of assumed competency that we can rely upon in a time of crisis. And for the most part, you know, we're seeing failure after failure uh, around this country. And I, I think Florida is a very interesting example where, you know, in response to hurricanes, you know, the state government has gotten very good at responding to hurricanes. You know, there was, uh, you know, the remarkable achievement last year um, where, you know, a bridge was built in the course of a few days that in many parts of the country would have taken several months at the least. Um, but this erosion of competency as a result of, of over-reliance upon the state or state proxy actors and the like is, is a very real issue. Um, and so can, can you talk a little bit about um, your, some of the, the other failures that you saw after the fire in terms of the government's response to this tragedy um, that, that helped make this all the worse? Well, yeah, so, so there was a lot going on, like I already mentioned. Um, it seems like uh, the, there was basically a bunch of electrical infrastructure placed in these very flammable grass fields upwind from the city. But then once fire broke out, um, it, it seems like firefighters had some success. They evacuated a school that was right um, next to this area. Um, but uh, then the government, the, the, the county government, sent out alerts that the fire was 100% contained um, and uh, obviously that wasn't true. It broke out again um, in the <laughs> afternoon um, and quickly moved into the city. Uh, the The residents were not made aware, um, you know, either through... There was an alert sent out, I think it was one minute before the fire really reached the city. Um, and uh, at this point, because, you know, this was electrical, uh, a lot of them didn't have power. Um, on top of that, the, there's apparently very good uh, sirens there that were not activated. And I think I saw a um, official was saying that they purposely didn't do that because um, these sirens are mainly meant to warn residents about tsunamis, and they didn't want the residents fleeing uphill towards the fire, which, I mean, I, I don't know. I feel like it would be kind of clear if you come outside and you see smoke that that's where the danger is and you know even if people thought that they happen to be you know getting hit by a tsunami at the same time i think i don't, I don't think there's a lot of risk people would be running into the flames um above the city um but on top of that the water pumps were uh powered by electricity and um so the very thing that was being shut off to try to uh contain the sparks and so firefighters were not able to um use fire hydrants. The fire hydrants ran dry very quickly. They had to pivot to a rescue operation um, and uh, couldn't really do anything about the flames. And then on top of that, uh, something that was kind of coming out after I had written this specific article was that um, there was one state official, a water official, who um, was a, a major private landowner uh, in the area was requesting water specifically to stop the fire. And this State official refused to let water go um, until it was it was much too late. And so, to, kind of to build on what you were just talking about, a um, a theme I've been touching on in a lot of my 
uh, writing is kind of what I think of as the um, is I think of government as being institutionally delusional, and um, because delusion means you know you're not grounded in reality, uh, and um, one of the great consequences of sort of the the free market, the free enterprise system is the profit and loss system. And specifically, I think the utility of economic losses uh, are something that people, they they often don't think about, but um, when when all of this is purely voluntary on a free market um, and anybody can just opt out um, of any business transaction, economic losses serve as a very good signal and a very motivating signal that um, these resources would be better used, more valued somewhere else, um, or maybe doing something else, or maybe under the management of someone else. And I think like one of the, um, the defining features of government as an institution is that it immunizes itself from economic loss. And um, from the standpoint that economic loss keeps institutions, you know, private entities, uh, grounded in the reality of what they're doing, which is trying to provide value to the end consumer. Um, when you don't get that feedback, you don't need to be as grounded in reality anymore. And so w- when it comes to things like this, like, yes, of course, it is possible. Um, and, you know, and, and it, like market failure happens. It's possible that uh, these failures could happen with private institutions, but the 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 constant and very motivating feedback of economic losses um, is a big deterrent, and if, if nothing else, uh, very much um, makes the those responsible for mistakes feel that pain um, in a way that that government is institutionally uh, protected from. Yeah, the, the importance of skin in the game, um, you know, is is something that's and, and then the danger is is that there seems to be a broadening of the state granting privileges in this regard to increasingly corporate actors where they have their own protections from liability. And so that, that issue of that lack of skin in the game, that, the, 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 the protection from that profit and loss mechanism, particularly when you add into a, a you know, a, the, the state purchasing, you know, services or goods from a company and then is, create a liability protections from the population should there be an issue there. And this is what's fueling a lot of the, the skepticism and cynicism about the, you know, big pharma, if you will, is that, you know, this, this grant of protections for various products. And, you know, it, the, the, the downside of that is that you can kind of begin become reflexively anti, um, anti-modern medicine, let's put it that way, if you view this entire industry as some sort of government-controlled racket industrial complex and in doing so miss out from a lot of the benefits that come from innovation and creation. And, you know, you know there, there are good things that come from, you know, economic progress is a very good thing. Um, but when you have that breakdown of trust as a result of the politicalization of it all, um, it leads to very dire consequences Welcome back to Good Money on this Thursday morning. I am your host, Tho Bishop. This is a product of the Mises 
Institute, M-I-S-E-S dot org. So we can find more content like this. And we've got a special deal for Money Talk 1010 listeners. If um, you have a, uh, a student in high school and college and you want to have them create a solid foundation in economic thinking, I think it's one of the best lenses by which to see the world, to be able to see through all sorts of uh, lies promoted by various entities. Um, I think just a, a, a good way of, of thinking about handling resources in our own day-to-day life. We've got two books that we have offered for just $5. One of them is How to Think About the Economy by Dr. Bear Byland, who is an economist with Oklahoma State University. The other one is a classic, What Has Government Done to Our Money?, written by Murray N. Rothbard. It goes through the history of the Fed, of money as an institution, um, and what has kind of led to the dollar we have today. It was written um, several decades ago, but just as relevant today now as ever before. Both those books you can get delivered directly to your doorstep for just $5. Going to Mises.org slash good. It's M-I-S-E-S dot org slash good. Use promo code goodmoney at checkout. And shipping and handling is included. So two bucks, $5, Mises.org slash good, promo code goodmoney. Someone who knows how to think about the economy is our guest today, Connor O'Keefe of the Mises Institute. And we've been talking about the consequences of government intervention, how it has eroded various aspects of society in ways that go beyond simply the pure economic costs, um, but the way that it has undermined responses to certain events, like the Maui fire. uh, fire. It has captured um, the decision-making aspect of a variety of institutions. It has spread its, uh, its privilege to affect other entities. And Connor, another article you had earlier this month uh, looks at yellow trucking, um, which, is, you know, which was uh, a very you know, respected, longstanding trucking company here in the United States. And I think given the issues that we had with supply shortages, um, during COVID, I think our appreciation and awareness of the wonders of logistics and everything that goes into it. I know my appreciation has definitely grown from that period. And um, unfortunately, yellow trucking has gone bankrupt. And you have an article on this identifying the role that uh, labor laws played into that process. Can you, can you share with our listeners um, what you found doing your research into yellow trucking. Yeah, so um, this was sort of kicked off uh, uh, actually um, uh, by a point that I think is made very well in that book, How to Think About the Economy, um, which is that it's important to remember that the entire point of an economy, the entire point of all these different lines of productions, uh, production is the creation of valuable goods and services for the end consumer. And um, that's a very messy and complicated process. And um, one thing that 
uh, Per Bailin does really well in that book is uh, to ground the entrepreneur, the role of the entrepreneur um, in that process as somebody who is constantly um, looking for ways to uh, refine, um, restructure, or open new lines of production to kind of to better meet um, the end consumer's needs and um, uh, the consumers as well, kind of like I talked about in the last segment, are uh, giving constant feedback with their choices through, uh, which manifest as uh, profits and losses. And um, economic losses and bankruptcies are very much part of that process. And of course, like, it's not fun to go bankrupt. It's not a good thing for those Involved when, but when you take a uh, a bigger picture view of the situation, there, there are times where resources and workers um, are being used to produce things that are not valued um, as much as alternatives are, and it's very important for any you know society, uh, for any economy to have mechanisms mechanisms in place to uh to make those changes to change what resources are being used for and economic losses and bankruptcies on a pure market are a very effective system for doing just that um and when they're born out of the voluntary uh out of the the wants and values of end consumers, um, economic losses can be productive in the grand scheme of of things. And so when, you know, big bankruptcy stories like this come out, I like to try to uh, dig into it a bit to figure out, you know, is this an example of a productive economic loss or an unproductive economic loss? And unproductive economic losses are where bankruptcies, um, things of that nature are occurring not because of the values of end consumers, not because these resources would be better used somewhere else, but because policy or some kind of other, you know, an intervention in the market um, is shifting resources away from their most valued uses. And so um, pretty clearly, you know, looking into the story, uh, it became clear quickly that um the teamsters union was uh a a dispute with the teamsters union was pretty central to um the at, at least at the very least the timing of this bankruptcy um and you know on, on top of that there was plenty of incompetent management it seems they they acquired some uh other trucking uh, or they merged with other um trucking firms uh over the last uh two decades or so and, and it seemed that they uh, there was some poor integration of those new networks um and and so like on that side of things like okay well uh if you have managers that are not competent enough to to do something you know it, it's very uh very possible that on the market like yeah the, the the market may signal that these resources would be better used um you know under other managers or maybe doing something else entirely um, but the unions can complicate things because um, while it's possible in theory that uh, 
labor unions can can come around um, in a purely voluntary way on the market. Um, the history has shown us that the the unionization as it's happened in um, the United States has been grounded a lot more in coercion, mostly the coercion of government. And so um, I sort of explored kind of the history of the labor union uh, of the labor movement in the U.S. and um, kind of uh, called attention to some specific bills, um, specific legislation that uh, has really given labor unions some uh, privileges, the, the government giving um, labor unions some you know, legal immunity and um, uh, things of that nature uh, that uh, is very closely correlated with sort of the rise of unions and specifically the rise of the Teamsters Union. And um, so I, I, you know, it, it's hard to get very, very specific answers, but um, when kind of taking a big picture look at uh, the history of both this company, you know, what happened with the bankruptcy and also sort of the labor union um, and the crony labor laws that have uh, really propped up labor unions like the Teamsters, I kind of came away th- with the conclusion that even if the management was incompetent and yellow trucking was sort of a doomed company, that at the very least the the, the speed and manner of this bankruptcy did not perfectly reflect the values, the the needs and wants of end consumers. And as a fortunate, this this you know we we can identify specific examples here. And the unfortunate reality is that you know, these sort of instances are so baked into the pie within the American economy at this point, right? You know, we we you know it, it's it's good from our perspective. It's good for content purposes, right? You know, we we can keep uh, you know there, there's 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 an endless number of these examples where we can go through and can dissect all the issues here, where you know this this state interference, this the state intervention, um, you know, a lot of this is 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 you know it's been built up over decades but in the grand scheme of things right you know these these are these are fairly modern laws modern tools that the state has created for itself and yet they're so saturated on all these these different aspects of the economy they're getting worse in some areas occasionally we'll get some sort of major form of deregulation that really hits a specific industry i can think back to um jimmy carter's administration um, and moves there made in the airline industry and telecommunications um, that have paid dividends over time. But all of these these interventions, all of these interferences that create issues for entrepreneurs, make it more difficult to provide these goods and services, provide additional costs, um, and also create malinvestment and to the extent that certain projects, certain certain entities, they take an incredible amount of capital, um, exhaust resources elsewhere. So we we have got about ninety minutes to or ninety seconds to the break, Connor. Any anything you want to leave our our listeners with? Uh, I just think that um, it's important to understand to take the time to understand the importance of economic losses because you know <laughs> it's hard to find defenders of them. They're very painful, but in the long term, in kind of the big picture. They're very important to our wealth and prosperity and well-being. Absolutely. 
and that the importance of seeing not just the seen, but the unseen, uh, going back to uh, Frederick Bastiat, great French economist uh, in the 1840s, um, you know, kind of a, a core economic lens, the, the, the cornerstone for really seeing the trade-offs in terms of policy, the, the wisdom from that. Uh, unfortunately, it, it is as relevant today as ever before because the political class is as aloof to it as ever before. So thank you very much, Connor, for joining us. If you're more interested in more from Connor, you can find him at Mises.org. Uh, find his author page. So stay tuned to the other side of the break. We'll finish out this episode of Good Money with Bo Bishop. Welcome back to the final segment of Good Money here on this good Thursday morning. I am your host, though, Bishop of the Mises Institute. And wanted to end this show. So we've been talking about uh, the politicalization of the economy in the U.S., various ways that it's played out. Uh, we looked at it in response to, in the context of the Maui fires, in terms of the trucking industry and the consequences of labor laws more broadly. Um, I want to contrast it, and you know, one of the the interesting sort of battles in the intellectual sphere of the last few decades has been questioning of can the continuing need for any sort of remnants of sort of an American economic system broadly, right? For all of our complaints, all of our all of our issues, all the interventions, all the ways that government has distorted our economic performance and the co- and, and amplified the cost to us. We are still relative to most of the world, a freer economy than most. And of course, one model that has increasingly kind of been pointed to as an alternative to the West and unfortunately has been, I think, created a a model for those in the West to try to emulate has, of course, been China. And, you know, we have been hearing for decades now that China's economy is going to grow and surpass us, that they have perfected, you know, they don't have to deal with the, the, the issues that come about with democracy. They're able to have these very long, very, very um, ambitious plans. This is what allowed it to have these great leaps in prosperity and has made it America's, you know, the closest state America has to a, a geopolitical rival on the world stage. Well, the issue is that many of the issues that, that you know, ultimately the, the model that China has from an economic perspective is a lot, you know, kind of amplified all the issues that we have with the American economy. Massive, massive debt, complete capture of the private sector, you know, the, these, these public-private enterprises that we have on, in smaller doses here in the United States. I mean, they make up the majority of the Chinese economy, um, the control over the currency. Um, strong control over the population generally. And we are seeing cracks right now um, that have been building for a while now. There were bank failures. I had an article in the Washington Times back in 2019 identifying various bank failures and stresses that were coming about in 2019 in the Chinese system. COVID kind of created a a veil over a lot of these issues for a variety of reasons. But now we have major um, breaks within what's called the shadow banking market, um, which is, which are financial institutions where people have been, have been placing their money, their deposits outside of the traditional banking market as a way of, of investing and things like that. They, they then allocate resources in other different areas. Um, and you're having major failures and cracks within this market. Um, you have, and, and when you consider the extent to which, you know, Chinese savings rates, 
are, you know, a point of pride there. You know, you're seeing families, their entire savings wiped out because the decisions that you make within the Chinese economy are made so much more difficult because they're based off political whims, right? You build up massive cities with the expectation for populations to move into. And of course, you know, I'm sure most of you are familiar with these ghost cities within China whose buildings end up being destroyed before they are filled to any major capacity. From the Chinese political standpoint, the goal there was job creation, right? They've got a very, uh, they've, they've got a large, though shrinking, population of young people, particularly young men, as a result of the one-child policy and the gender preferences within it. Um, you can't have a bunch of idle young men, so we're going to put them to work building things that you don't, we don't need. Um, you know, We'll build a bridge, then blow it up, and then rebuild it again. This is kind of Keynesianism on steroids, Keynesianism with Chinese characteristics, if you will. And the economic performance of China right now is falling. We have an article on Mises.org from Dr. Peter Saint-Ange, who is an Orlando area resident, actually. Um, China enters the doom loop, um, where he, he, he breaks down some of the recent indicators of China's plunging economic activity. Exports fallen almost 15%. Um, um, 21% drop in, in the Euro, uh, Europe and 23% in the U.S. alone, right? Some of that has to do with probably political tensions, but uh, all of it plays a role. Um, massive drops in terms of the real estate industry there. Um, you've had Evergrande, um, which a major development company, fail. Um, and this is leading to a, a massive economic contraction. Um, Chinese citizens are not purchasing the same extent as they were. Experts are exports there abroad, not coming um, not creating the demand for products. And so an entire system that is really built off of state control, off of political will, um, again, for all of the heights that people associate with the Chinese economy, even that model, which again, has some benefits because of how authoritarian it is, right? You don't have to worry about elections. You don't have to worry about, um, you know, the political responses to the mobs per se. Um, as we saw in Hong Kong, you, you get enough of, of a mob and, you know, they have ways of taking that down. Uh, but ultimately, the the fundamentals of economics, they're not unique to America. They're not unique to the West. These are global. These are universal. These are just baked into reality. Trade-offs, opportunity costs, the inability to get something for nothing, these are universal truisms. These are economic laws. Understanding those is very important to understanding the society around us. This, this is what the Mises Institute does on a daily basis. If you're interested in learning more content like this, you can find it at Mises.org. This has been Good Money. I'll see you next Thursday, same time, same place. <laughs>